Uh, my name is Axie Bontrager. Um, I'm in worship. You may have seen me in kids before, um, running around chasing little munchkins. Um, but today I'm going to be doing the scripture reading. Um, today's scripture is Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Thanks. All right. Good morning. Why, thank you. It is good to be with you guys today. If you're here for the first time or watching online, my name is James. I'm one of the the pastors here. It is such a joy to be able to uh, talk about what God is doing and enter into his word together. Uh, Today we're going to be jumping into or starting off in chapter 4 of Ephesians, the second half. Actually, last week we started, uh, but because I had laryngitis for like a month, everything kind of got messed up and that was preset. So we're going to jump into the first verses of Ephesians chapter 4 as Paul kind of moves to the second half of this book as he moves into application. And we're going to get back on track. So Paul spent the first three chapters of Ephesians just hammering in on what it means that we are now in Christ. We are now God's children, that we are adopted as part of his family, that we are brought from death to life, that, his, uh, that everything that he has done is in order to dwell with us and to seat us with him at his right hand. All these things that Christ has done. And so the, the title of this series we're in is called Ephesians, Living and Loving Like Jesus in the Midst of a Post-Christian World. And you're going to start to see that much more as we continue through the second half of why that's so significant. Because after spending the first few chapters describing very specifically, again and again and again, over and over, all that Christ has done for us and who we are now in Christ, now he's going to move to the second half of this letter, which is almost entirely exhortation and application. Command after command after command of now that this is who we are, how are we now supposed to live? And as he opens up in chapter 4, verse 1, he begins by saying, Therefore I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Notice the double usage of the word called there. And a couple verses later, he says it this way in verse 4. He says, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So if I were to ask you this morning, what is your calling? How would you respond? Think about that for a second. What is your calling? If you're like most Christians, you would struggle to answer that. You might come up with different possible ideas, but when I was looking at coming to America to pastor a, a few years ago, I went to the final round of the job interview process with four different churches before the opportunity here at our home church in Northview opened up. And each of the churches asked me to write out what is your call or describe your calling into ministry. And I want to be honest, I really struggle with that question because I I feel it's a really messed up question to ask, specifically because it's primarily asked of pastors and missionaries, as though there's some kind of a special calling. And after last week, as we're looking at the calling of the minister of of the body to be ministers, I hope you can see why I hesitate with that question, specifically only being asked of pastors and missionaries, being a missionary my whole life and then becoming a pastor. There's some idea somehow that pastors or missionaries are some type of elite status that require a special calling, and then there's everybody else after that. But I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. That's a modern construct. Scripture shows, as we saw last week and as we just read, that all who are children of God are called into ministry, every single one of us. It's not specific to pastors or ministries. That just perpetuates this very broken understanding of God's kingdom. And for that question, when it asks, describe your calling into ministry, my response I want to give, but I can't be honest, is just simply, I accepted Christ when I was eight years old. There's my calling into ministry. 
right? Because they're synonymous. Choosing to follow Christ and accepting a calling of ministry are identical in Scripture. There's no separation of the two. And if they want more information, I could say, read Ephesians, or read Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to know more, right? Like, it's that, that's my calling. And, and again, because there's this huge line of problem in our thinking when we try to elevate pastors, missionaries, pastoral, professional staff as some type of different status than the rest of the body. It completely misses out on the role of the body of Christ. And it's not a new phenomenon. In fact, this has been going on not just for centuries, but since almost the beginnings of the early church. And for us to learn what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, we have to unlearn something that wasn't a problem for them, but has become a modern problem for the church today. Because you see, so often in the church today, we have this understanding of like clergy and laymen or laity. And maybe in modern churches, we don't use those antiquated terms of clergy and laity, but we still have the concepts and the ideas rooted into our brains that there's the professionals and the unprofessionals within the church. And it's created a model of the church where if someone wants a friend to hear the gospel, what do they do? They take them to the trained professional. They bring them to church to hear the gospel. If a friend is struggling, they're like, mm, who at the church or what professional can I be able to take them to? I need the clergy to be able to help them out because, well, I'm just a layman. I'm just a, a volunteer. And sometimes we can use this as a crutch to prevent us from actually fulfilling our calling and actually doing the things Christ is called to do because, well, I'm just a volunteer or I'm just, I'm just a layman. And instead of ministry being done by 100% of the body the way Christ intended it to be, it's done by a much smaller percentage of those who feel called. And the usage of both these words is so messed up, and it, it makes sense when you see the history of it. So what I want to do is give a very brief history lesson of where we got this idea from so we can unpack it and then enter into chapter 4, recognizing our calling as ministers. So something very funky happened early on in the church by one of the biggest leaders in the church. And, and so biblically, it's actually pretty fascinating because it's not in Scripture. So let's start with this word clergy. The word clergy comes from the Greek word, <coughs> sorry, Greek word kleros. And kleros simply means a lot or a portion or an inheritance. And it's often used just to refer to someone's inheritance. But in Scripture, there's no example of it ever being used to describe a group of leaders or professionals in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it's always the opposite. And so you have the example in Colossians in chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, The Father has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. Now, here, kleros refers to the inheritance of the people of God. That's the clergy. That's the inheritance of everyone. Or another crazy one found in 1 Peter. And here, Peter is speaking to the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, those who some might consider to be the, the clergy in some way. And he says this to the leaders of the church. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, nor yet as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. So those assigned to the elders' care, that's the word for clergy, kleros. So Paul is literally telling the leaders of the church that it's their job to shepherd everyone else whom he calls clergy. Isn't that cool? So the clergy is actually everyone. It's those receiving the inheritance. And that's what Scripture says. In fact, a couple chapters before this, Peter is speaking about the body of Christ, the clergy, and he says, you are God's holy priests through the mediation of Jesus Christ. So the clergy are the body of Christ who share in the inheritance of Jesus. 
Paul keeps saying this over and over. That's all of us. All of us, the entire body, is the clergy. We are the clergy, the kleros, the, the holy priesthood. We, we need Jesus as our mediator. That is our inheritance as him. We need no other mediator, no clergy to mediate for us, no pastor or priest or, or professionals to mediate for us. Jesus is our mediator as the clergy, as the body of Christ. Isn't that cool? But it doesn't stop just there. It gets kind of funky or actually really kind of idiotic after this because that's where the word clergy comes from. What about this word laity or layman that we often hear? Well, that comes, laity comes from the Greek word called lykos. And lykos just means of the common people. Now, what's fascinating is the word lykos is actually not found anywhere in any, any of Scripture. But the first, noted, the, first rec- uh, uh, the first time it's ever used that is found is 300 years before Jesus. And it was used in the Greek to describe, uh, it was an adjective used to describe profane things of the rural people. So this word laity comes from lykos, and what it meant was the profane things of the rural people. And it was a synonym for the Greek word idiotes, which in Greek means non-professional, right? This is going back a long, long, long time. So guess which English word we get from idiotes, right? It's not hard to be able to guess. It means idiot. And at that time, it meant unprofessional and untrained. So, So why does this matter? Because the bishop of Rome, 60 years after Jesus died, in 96 AD, his name was Clement, he's a pretty famous dude, something he was trained by John, he was writing about the priests of the Old Testament back long ago, and when he was writing about those who were not the priests, he used this Greek word for the first time called lykos. And what happened is over time, the word lykos became laity as it got translated, which eventually became layman. So what we're having here is this word is not found anywhere in Scripture, and it's basically what laity means. It's a profane, common, untrained idiot. And it's basically in its original meaning. Not what we see it today as meaning that. But that's kind of what it meant in its original form. So the great theologian Karl Barth, he says this. He says, the term laity is one of the worst in the vocabulary of religion and ought to be banished from Christian conversation. Right? So as we've seen these past two weeks, we as the body are called to do the ministry as a body. We as the body are not laity, we're not lay people, we're not unprofessional idiots. We are the people of God. We are the clergy of God. We are the royal priesthood of God called to do the ministry of Christ and to build up the body. That is our role as the clergy, as the body of Christ. And as we saw last week, the weight of the ministry is not placed upon the pastors and the teachers and the professionals. The weight of ministry, according to Scripture, is placed upon the clergy, the body, the royal priesthood, all of us. That is our calling upon all the body to do Christ's work and to build up the body of Christ. Amen? That's who we are. That's our calling. So this, there's sometimes this twisted view of pastoral roles, that they're the ones that should be doing the ministry, that they're the ones who should be doing the counseling and training the new believers and all this other stuff. And that's twisted. That's not found in Scripture. But according to Scripture, especially we saw last week, where we're looking at this week and next, the primary job of a pastor, of the professionals, is to equip the body, the clergy, the priesthood for ministry to carry out the calling to which they are called. And so that's my primary God-given role as a pastor, as a shepherd. Obviously, to continue to do those things myself, but for me to equip the body to do the work of Christ, the ministry of Christ. And the reason I'm, I'm hammering on this to start with is if, if we don't get this, the role of us as the body and our calling as the clergy, as the royal priesthood of God, that we're, our job is to do the ministry of the body, 
the ministry of Christ, then the rest of this letter just becomes a bunch of commands and it becomes just steps towards personal piety, which is not what this letter is about at all. It's about this is what it means to do our calling. This is what it means for us to be a part of the body of Christ. That's what this rest, letter, rest of this letter is. And we have to have that understanding. Otherwise, it's just here. There's some personal suggestions for you to integrate in your life at some point. Okay, so that's what we've seen. So now we're going to enter into 4.1 with that background. And as Paul begins this, he's going to start off by saying, therefore, I urge you as a prisoner of Christ. Now, this therefore that he's going to start with is because he's referring to everything from chapters 1 through 3. Everything that Christ has done. Now that you've seen everything that Christ has done, the way he called you from the beginning, the way he created you, the way he adopted you, the way he put his great, his, all his powers towards you who believe, the way he raised from the dead and raised you with him, the way he did all of this in his grace and brought you from death to life, all that Christ has done, you've seen it now. And he says, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, I urge you to do this. I beg of you to do this. And to do what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And Paul's going to keep repeating this word walk in this letter, which just means to actually live this stuff out, for this to be integrated into your life. And how are they supposed to walk out this thing? He says, by walking worthy of your calling to which you've been called. And I love this because I spent the first part emphasizing the calling, but now... It's not just a calling we sit around and ask, okay, so what is my calling? But Paul here is actually very, very clear that it's not some calling of to be a pastor or a missionary or a doctor or a janitor or a teacher or a lawyer. That This is not just some role that they do, but he's abundantly clear what their calling is. Their calling is to, is to become like Christ, as we'll see. And he's going to spend the next three chapters describing it very specifically. In fact, the best place where Paul just lays out our calling as believers intentionally is in Romans chapter 8. Let's look at that for a second. He says in Romans chapter 8, 28, and we know that in all things, many of you guys probably know this verse, and know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So called according to his purpose. Here it is, 29. For those God foreknew, those who he knew in advance, he also predestines, he pre-chose to be conformed to the image of his son. So we are called according to God's purpose. And what is the purpose? To be conformed into the image of Christ which means that we would actually become like Jesus in how we live and how we love. We would live, act, love, respond, think increasingly like Jesus. This is the calling of the Ephesians and everyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ, that they actually become more like Jesus, to live and love like Jesus. You've probably heard me mention that once or twice, that this is the calling of which we are called is to become like Jesus. Never again does any believer ever have to wonder, what is my calling? It's laid out there for us. We are called to live and love like Jesus, to become like him, to be conformed to him in every area of our life. And Paul's going to spend the rest of Ephesians giving example after example after example of what that life looks like. And so Paul starts off the application of this letter by saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of that calling, a life worthy of all that Christ has spoken about. Of all that Christ has done, that we integrate it. I mean, now, for anyone, does this feel maybe a little daunting? That actually we are called to live in love like Jesus. And it should, especially when you understand the Greek word for worthy. The Greek word for worthy is actually rooted in the word to mean to balance a set of scales or to be of equal weight. And I tried to find one of those like cool old style justice scales. 
that are awesome, but instead I got my kids scale, right? So not quite as good as our kids homeschool scale. So here's our kids scale and it still shows the basic concept. So on a scale, if you need to have equal weight, so if you have something on this side and it has a weight, you have to put equal pressure on the other side, right? And so what he's saying is saying of all of chapters one through three, of everything Christ has done, all that Christ did is on one side. And we need to live a life worthy of all Christ has done and how we live in love. No small task right there, right? That, but that's what he's saying, that we need to live worthy of this calling to become like Christ of what Christ has done. But that's the example he's doing, that our life should be of equal weight to all what Christ has done in becoming like Christ and living and loving like him. Now, is that possible this side of eternity for us? Absolutely not in its fullness. But this must become our aim. It's no small request. But we must devote ourselves to moving in this direction. This is the calling to which we are called. I heard someone once say about this passage, don't try this at home. Right? And I love that example. If you think back in the day, and maybe they still do it, I just haven't, I don't watch much normal, regular TV these days, but they used to have it regularly when they'd show stunts or something on TV. It says, you know, this is being done by trained professionals. Do not try this at home. And I love that about this passage because if we attempt to do this on our own, we will fail and we'll fail miserably. So do, with this passage, there should be a warning. Do not attempt this in your own flesh. Do not attempt this at home on your own because you will fail, you will get exhausted, and you will quit. And that's what happens to so many Christians. They get caught up in legalism trying to become something they cannot be on their own. Without the Holy Spirit's empowering presence and actively reorienting our lives to move towards Him over the long term, this is just a recipe for disaster. But Paul is saying we must move in this direction. So now in verse 2, he's going to say it this way. He's going to start describing what it looks to live worthy of this calling, and he's going to spend the rest of the letter doing it. As he does, now it's fascinating to me, of all the things that Paul could say, right before we get to it, of all the things Paul could say, he's about to say, this is what a life worthy of the calling of Christ, of becoming like Christ looks like, and you think of all the things that you would list, and here's what he starts with first, which means it's very significant. Starting in verse 2, he says this, with all humility and with gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. This is at the top of his mind as he talks about what does it mean to live worthy of the, of, of the kingdom of, of what Christ has done. So number one, humility. Two, gentleness or, or meekness, depending on the translation. Three, patience or long-suffering, depending on the translation. Or four, bearing with one another in love. Now I'm going to look at each of these, but spoiler alert, all of them basically are descriptions of Jesus. Right? They all basically mean becoming like Christ. In fact, when Jesus introduces himself, when he describes himself, and in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, here's what he says. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So these literally describe Jesus. And so let's look at each of these, starting with humility. Now, it's incredible that of all the things Paul could start with, he starts with humility. And for many of us, we say, sure, I mean, that's a good value. But you have to understand, for the Greeks, that was not a value. In fact, humility was despised among the Greeks at that time. In Greek, amazingly, there is no word for humility that is not something that's an insult or mean in some way. In fact, the Christians had to create a new word for humility because there was nothing, there was no word in their vocabulary that had anything that was productive or good about that word. So they created their own word for it. There was nothing about humility that had a positive connotation. For the Greeks, humility or being humble was a word used to describe slaves. It was a word used to describe people of no repute, 
that were cowering or cringing at that time. But for Jesus, it became one of his chief characteristics. The greatest description given of Jesus is actually given by Paul in the letter of Philippians chapter 2. He says in Philippians chapter 2, describing Jesus, be humble, thinking of others. Well, first the command, be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. And now he says, you must have the same attitude as that that Jesus had. Right? So that's what he's telling the people. You must be like Jesus. And what was Jesus like? Verse 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So Paul says we need to be like Jesus, be humble like Jesus. Look to others' interests ahead of our own. Seek the welfare of others ahead of our own. Let those other cars merge in front of us, even if they ran up the left side of the road too long and waited to the last minute, right? Practical ways of being able to be humble. Seek the welfare of others. These aren't just ideas or concepts. But this was a foreign concept to the Greeks. They had no understanding, no concept for this idea. This was insane for them. There was no value system for humility in their culture. And honestly, as we look around at much of modern Christianity today, do we have much of a value for this today within our faith? You know, I think the Greeks would feel far more at home with much of 21st century Christianity than the one of Jesus and Paul's day, right? When, where self-promotion is the norm, where power and wealth and status and connections and name-dropping are, are celebrated and desired, where Facebook and Instagram are basically, many ways, just the Greek system on steroids, where they're anti-humility and, and gentleness factories that we just keep producing and manufacturing self-promotion and self-absorption and, and filling ourselves endlessly all day long with me, 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 the world being centered around myself, creating curated images of ourselves and, and always comparing ourselves to others. I mean, it is just so dangerous, and it's not the way of Jesus. It's not who he called us to be. We are called to actually become like Christ, to lay our lives down for others, to walk in the opposite of those ways. And so again, I say, do not try this at home. Do not do this in your own flesh. You will fail miserably because this requires the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Number two, he says, gentleness or meekness is living a life worthy of the calling. How well is the church today doing in the area of gentleness in the world? Does the world outside look at the church, not just Northview, but the church in broad, and think that is what gentleness looks like? Especially these past few years. My goodness, have we failed. We've adopted the ways of the world. At some point as Christians, we bought into the lie that if we want to see, be seen, or if we want power, if we want to seat at the table, then we must fight fire with fire. We must do things the ways of the world. We, we must, if we want our voice to be heard, we must be just as loud as the world. We must be, must be just as mean, just as combative as the world. And we believe somehow that the ends justify the means. There's no scriptural basis for any of that. But somehow that has taken over in so many ways. And here, Paul is saying that this is what our calling looks like. Humility and gentleness. This is what we should be known for. This is what it means to live worthy of the calling to which we've been called. 
Now, gentleness and meekness do not equal weakness. In fact, one of the greatest leaders of Scripture, Moses, one of the strongest leaders that the body has ever known, was called the meekest man on the face of the planet. Jesus was not weak, despite being even more meek than Moses. No human in history has ever had, 100% God and 100% human, no human in history has ever had access to the power that Christ had. Meekness is often described as power under control. And it's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians. But yet it seems the fruit of the Spirit that Christians struggle with the most in order to be, when they're dealing with other Christians, especially those who they may disagree with. In fact, this is the, the fruit of the Spirit that I pray for more than anything else and seek the Lord with because it's the one I've struggled with most in my life is the area of gentleness and meekness. And I regularly evaluate my life in this area of just wanting to grow because I actually want to become more and more like Jesus. And therefore, this is one of my greatest weaknesses. In fact, one of my greatest, one, I think one of the greatest descriptions of Jesus is found in the book of Isaiah. I've used this before, but in verse 3 of chapter 42, uh, Isaiah says this about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And I love that image. It's so powerful. That Jesus moves among a field of broken reeds. And he walks with such care and sensitivity that no bruised reed is broken. Right? A bruised reed is so weak that just touch it and it'll fall over. And Jesus moves among a field of of bruised reeds. And no reed is broken because he has such care and concern and tenderness and gentleness. In fact, not only are they not broken, but they are healed and restored in his midst. That Jesus handles smoldering wicks and candles that are just about to go out. And he handles them with such sensitivity that not only does the flame not go out, but it's restored to full flame. And I love that image of Jesus. The sensitivity, the gentleness, the tenderness of Jesus. It's so powerful. But here's Paul's entire point. And the most important point here. This isn't supposed to be only true of Jesus. If what Paul said is real... This is how we are to live as believers. Empowered by Jesus' presence, this should be true of us as well. It's the calling to which we as the clergy, as the body, are called. So we should be living in such a way that those who are bruised and broken and hurting and grieving, that they experience Jesus by being with us. That is our calling. That in our speech and in our actions, we provide care and comfort and gentleness and humility. For those who are smoldering wicks, for those who are exhausted and tired, or as the Bishop Todd Hunter, he describes them as ex-evangelicals, or those deconstructing previous religious views, those wrestling with gender or sexual identity or even with their faith, those who are hurting and are weary but maybe wary of Christians because of pain, are we as believers walking in gentleness and meekness as a norm, as a way of life? Do we communicate publicly, whether it be in person or on social media or on Facebook, with gentleness that would draw those who are hurting or deconstructing, draw them to Jesus by the way we communicate? Do we communicate in such a way that it will draw them back to God or to Him for the first time? Do we communicate or do we communicate and act in the ways of the world? Do we try to match sarcasm for sarcasm and and match the vitriol of the world and and seek to be just as witty or even more witty and seek to tear down and use our keyboard as warriors or, or voices in a way that stomp upon the reeds and blow out the wicks of those who are hurting? Church, these are not ideals that he tells us to consider. This is our calling to do this. 
as believers. This is the calling to which we are called. Are we actively seeking the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to empower us and enable us to be more like Jesus in how we live in love? This is our calling. Can we be trusted with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks? Even when we don't know they're in that shape. So the problem is, often Christians are like, yeah, when I know they're hurting, but what? Most people, you don't know they're hurting. Most people who are bruised reeds, you have no idea. On the outside, they try to be as strong as possible. And so only when we're given a ministry opportunity do we shift gears and all of a sudden be listening and considerate. But man, when we don't know, we go after them on Facebook. We go after them in person. And we, we talk with strength and, and domination because we don't actually know who these people are. They're the people right around us. It may even be us. Can we be trusted with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks? Or will we stomp on them and blow them out? Because of our arrogance and our self-absorption. For so many Christians, we're happy to talk about becoming like Jesus. But we're unwilling to actually reorder our life and do the hard soul work necessary to actually become the kinds of people that live and love like Jesus. So therefore, who are the smoldering wicks and the bruised reeds in and around your life right now? Neighbors who don't know Jesus. Marriages that are falling apart. Parents of children who are in rebellion. Believers maybe who are, who are turning away from God. Those in the midst of deconstructing their faith. Do we just laugh at them and, and mock or do we come alongside with smoldering wicks? Those facing depression and anxiety or those who are struggling with, with gender or sexual identity or friends or strangers on Facebook who, who believe something completely different than us and we feel the need to tell them why they're wrong. Are we exemplifying humility and tenderness and gentleness of Jesus to each of them? Or do they experience the opposite, the ways of the world coming back at them, being stomped on and blown out? And the way we act, do people around us experience Jesus by being around us the way we communicate with them? This, to me, is what Paul is getting at. I'll tell a story. I, years back, I was a missionary in, in, in Beijing, China. And uh, for those who don't know, I was a missionary for 25 years until a couple years ago coming here. But I was fluent in Mandarin and actually took quite a bit of pride in my being a real missionary who knew the language and knew the culture and everything else at that time. And I love the Chinese people and culture. And whenever I was traveling back to America, I'd stop at what's called the Silk Market in Beijing. It's one of the most famous tourist traps there. And it's filled with Chinese stuff, just maybe like a thousand different stalls, super busy, packed with all these tourists. And they sell tons of all the, you know, all the Chinese knockoff stuff as well as the tourist stuff. It's where you'd get your, your fake North Fake. We call them North Fake shirts and, and Jokeleys instead of Oakleys. You'd get all these knockoff clothing that were just as good as the real stuff, but just for pennies on the dollar, as well as all the, all the tourist stuff. And there's hundreds of stalls selling all this stuff, and the salespeople, as you go through, are really aggressive. They'll kind of grab your hand and pull you in and say, good price, they don't know, just a little bit of English, good price, come here. And it's kind of frustrating and maddening as they, there's all these people that are grabbing you to come in. So anyways, one day I was rushing through the market to get to the stall I needed to get, which was towards the back. And as I was doing it, I was kind of weaving past all the, shit, the salespeople and ignoring them and just trying to be on target to get where I wanted to go. And as I rushed through, there was this one seller who looked me in the eye as I was walking past them, and they said to me in Mandarin, not in English, with an angry voice, they said, you have lived here a long time. I was like, whoa, okay. I mean, this is weird because white people don't speak Chinese, right? So there's no way they would assume this. It's filled with tourists. And I was shocked, and so I figured I must know them from somewhere. And so I said, have we met? They said, no, 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 no. But I can tell that you have lived here for a long time. And I was confused. I said, what do you mean? How do they know that I could speak Mandarin? I mean, I, I, I kind of got a little proud of me. Maybe there's something about me that I give off the air that, that, I, that I've been around, that I'm like a local, and there's something, maybe there's something good about it. And then she looks me directly in the eyes. She says to me, 
you walk through here and you don't even see us. You don't care about us Chinese people. We are nothing to you. I've never been more convicted in my entire life. It's one of the greatest gifts the Lord has ever given me. I didn't know the Holy Spirit spoke Mandarin until that moment. But man, he was shouting at me through this woman. I was shocked, but eventually it brought me to tears and repentance. It's one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned. And to this day, I can see her face and I can hear her voice of what she said. Because I was a missionary. And yet the very people I was called to serve felt unseen. Because I was so focused on myself. My needs and what I needed. And I rushed about serving my own interests. I was not demonstrating the love of Christ and the tenderness of God to those people. I was tromping on bruised reeds and blowing out wicks left and right. I lacked gentleness and humility. And I've never forgotten her or what she said. And, I, and every time I think about it, I just say, Oh, Jesus, I so badly want to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have called me. I want people to encounter you when they encounter me. And that means I need to change. And I have to keep changing. Because it's not going to happen naturally. And it's hard, deep soul work. But I need to change. Is anyone with me on that? And recognize that in your own life. Amen. And so what does that mean for us? It means when you are walking, or so when you're not walking worthy of the calling to which you are called, it means you're stomping on bruised reeds and you're blowing out wicks left and right. Or when you say, I'm just speaking off the cuff or I'm just calling them as I see them. Or the most, one of the most abused passages anywhere in scripture of saying, you know, I'm just speaking the truth in love. And anytime that verse is quoted, rarely ever is there any truth or any love being shown. We're actually going to get to that verse in a couple, in a couple weeks. This is deep stuff, people. Okay, there's two more aspects I want to hit briefly before we close. And we're going to go back to verse 2. And Paul said they need to live a life worthy of, with all humility and gentleness that we talked about, but then also with patience, bearing with one another in love. So next he sees, says they need to be patient and bear with one another in love. And, and these two things, they go together, patience and forbearance, or patience and, and bearing with one another in love. In fact, another word for patience is actually forbearance. But the, another tr- primary translation of patience, kind of the deep meaning of it, is actually long-suffering. So Paul is saying they must be willing to suffer for one another and bear with one another in love. And again, this is not just a reference to hanging out with people and, and having patience and just waiting around. He's saying Christians must have patience that is long-suffering and love that can, to be able to even love those that we can't stand being around or we deeply disagree with. And we can see it the way he doubles up those words, patience, forbearance, long-suffering, and bear with one another in love. And what that tells us is that the life in a Christian community is going to involve a great deal of tension and long-suffering. It's going to happen. And Paul knows it, and he doubles up on it here. He doubles down on this right here. And again, not just putting up with, but learning how to love and be gentle with and walk in humility, even with those we deeply disagree with. Now, I know this applied to the Greeks. Obviously, they had the issues between Jews and Gentiles who hated each other. Their disagreements were far greater than any, I don't know, Republican and Democrat divide or theological conservative and theological liberal divide. The Jews and Gentiles were so much worse than that. And so clearly this applied directly to them. But it's nice every once in a while to read a command that doesn't apply to us very much, right? I mean, this is why I said don't try this at home or in your own flesh. 
This is some hard stuff. Paul's kind of going for the jugular here. He's, he's dealing deep at the level of the soul of saying, don't just have patience. Don't just put up with. But bear with one another in love. Be willing to long suffer. Do we have patience with one another? They're causing us pain. Are we tempted to stop loving our neighbors or friends when we find faults in them? I mean, the over a number of people just say they just block people on social media whenever they say something they don't agree with. I mean, we have gotten so thin-skinned. Do we have patience? Are we long-suffering when people offend us or cause pain? We are called as Christians to be long-suffering. This is who Jesus was. And it's another fruit of the Spirit. It's listed there in Galatians. Meaning you can't produce it by your own effort. You'll just fail and get exhausted. It's only power, po- possible through the powering presence of the Spirit. So our, yet again, are Christians known today for how long-suffering we are and patient we are? I mean, it almost sounds funny to even say that out loud. That's how bad it is. Obviously not. But we must cultivate this. It's our calling to which we've been called. There's no options here. And this kind of patience, again, is so much more than the kind I try and t- teach my kids, where it's, you got to be patient. When mommy and daddy are talking, don't interrupt us as they start going blue in the face, right, and manifesting as they just need to say it, and ah, and, and like... It's not that kind of patience, just wait your turn. This is long-suffering. Endure pain of those who hurt and disagree and despise. And to love the person actually causing the pain. And again, that's not referring to abusive relationships. If you're in one, get out, get help, come talk to us, we'll help you. But this would definitely include conversations with family or friends in person or on social media who have different views than you on politics or COVID or doctrine or, or any subject that there is. We must be long-suffering and patient. Are we cultivating a life of long-suffering and bearing with one another in love as believers? Amen? Are we living a life worthy of the calling to which we are called? That's a lot. I'm going to stop here for today. I think that's enough to deal with. We've hit two verses. Um, I wanted to get through six today, and I narrowed it just to two. Um, but they're so good and they're so convicting. It's, it's like heart surgery. I just say, I love when the Holy Spirit helps me experience more freedom and abundant life in him by pruning away my disordered desires. It hurts in the moment, but oh, it gives freedom in life. Sometimes it can be a bit painful, but oh, such beauty in life. And so please, just like Paul, I, I urge you, Don't just hear this and forget. This requires deep soul work. Take some time with this. Go to the Lord today and say, Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for me in chapters one through three of dying for me and giving your life for me and all that you provided for me. Thank you for bringing me from death to life. And Jesus, I recognize I'm a mess, but I want to become more like you, Jesus. I want to live and love more like you. Reveal to me where I'm walking in the opposite of these ways, Lord. Empower me to grow. I want to grow. I want to walk worthy of your calling, Jesus. So let's put that list back up. Humility, gentleness, meekness, patience, and long-suffering. Bearing with one another in love. I want us to take a minute as we finish this morning. Just with the Holy Spirit, a come to Jesus minute. Um, 
And as we do this, I actually want to read one of my favorite passages to memorize, and I think everyone should memorize it, is Psalm 139, 23, and 24, which says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So we're going to enter into worship here in a minute. And first, can you pray this prayer with me right now? Out loud. Let's pray this prayer together right here, right now. So you say, search me, O God. Pray it with me, and know my heart. Test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a dangerous prayer, but it's a beautiful one. And so let's let's put the yeah, list back up there again. Humility gentleness or meekness, patience and long-suffering, bear with one another in love. Let the Spirit speak to us right now. And for some of us, maybe right now we just need to repent. Maybe there's something that's happened this morning that's just been evident, and you're just triggered instantly like, yeah, I know that's an issue for me. I am just a jerk online, or I'm a jerk in person. Yeah, I'm great when I know it's a ministry opportunity, but when I don't, I'm filled with myself, just like James walking through that Chinese silk market. And so this isn't about shame. But saying, Jesus, I don't want to forsake my calling. I want to live out the calling to which I have been called. And so just like I did with my, when my Chinese friend confronted me, when the Holy Spirit spoke to me in Mandarin, just reflect right now and say, Jesus, I need to become more like you. Jesus, search my heart. And I recognize I'm not gentle with, with whoever it may be, Jesus. I, I know I'm not being meek or... A, I know I've not been patient and long-suffering. I know my heart is posting things on social media or saying to friends that it's, it's about because it's coming out of my anger and my self-absorption. Or I know I'm not a safe person for those who are hurting and those who are weak and those deconstructing or those questioning their own sexual identity or their faith in some way or, or those struggling with depression or anxiety. I recognize I'm, I'm blowing out wicks and stomping on, on, on reeds. Jesus, help me to be gentle and humble. I want people to encounter you when they encounter me. And so right now, as we go to just time, we're going to spend just a, a minute or two just in silence with just music in the background. I want you just to pray and say, Lord, where am I stomping on those reeds? Jesus, where am I not representing you to the world around me in these four areas? So Jesus, we just come to you. Holy Spirit, speak to us right now. Call us out, Holy Spirit. Speak to us in Mandarin or English, whatever language works for us. But show us right now our heart. That we be conformed more into the image of your son so we can live out your calling to which you've called us. Amen. Just take a minute in silence.
just as we enter into worship. Remember, this kind of deep soul work obviously can't just be done in a couple minutes. It's, it requires a bit of a life reordering. I want to encourage you to take whatever it is the Lord is speaking to and move with that. If you've not, if there's something that's been revealed, repent. Repentance isn't a dirty four-letter word. It's something we should be doing throughout the day, every day. I repent multiple times every day. Not of, you know, whip myself and I'm a terrible person, but just saying, Lord, I recognize my, I'm living unworthy of the calling. Lord, thank you for your love and for your grace. May we repent. May we reorder our lives. And I was just going to say, as, as we enter in, online is, uh, if you go to our sermon resources side, there's a, a, a place of discussion questions. And those are for home groups, but they're also for individuals. And this week, if you don't normally ever look at that, please go there and just personally, even in a quiet time, go through this because it has specifically, it processes through this. And I think this is a beautiful, deep soul work week to say, Lord, I want to grow. And I encourage you to go there, access that even on your own and walk through some of those questions as, as you prayerfully meet with the Jesus.